Have y'all ever thought about how many tests you have taken in your life? I don't know anybody likes to take tests. I've spent probably somewhere over 20 years of my entire life in formal education of some kind, and I'd like to know how many tests I've taken over those years. And I've become a nervous wreck over just about every one of them. Tests can be rather scary. Some of the most fearful words, which I still have in my nightmares from time to time, were the dreaded words, all right, everybody, y'all put your materials away. We're going to take a pop test. I hated pop test. Uh, and really, you know, when you think about it, it's not just something that's relegated to schools. We have tests of all kinds that, I mean, we got proficiency tests and standardized tests and aptitude tests and personality tests, pregnancy tests. We don't take those at my house anymore. Amen. Uh, they're intelligence tests, college entrance tests. Radon test in your house, tests for mold, humidity test, water hardness test, driver training test, sobriety test. I've never been exposed to one of those. Lie detector test. We were watching television recently and the guy came on to remind us that this was only a test. I mean, there's all kind of tests. And like it or not, they're an inevitable part of life with God. I have known many people, and you have too, that have surrendered to faith in Christ under the mistaken notion that once they did that, life was going to be smooth sailing for the next 70 years. God's going to protect me. I'm never going to experience pain, disappointment, heartache. Life's just going to be, I'm going to live in a bubble. God's going to take good care of me and they'll just float me right on to glory when it's all over. But we all know that's not the case. The Bible says in Psalm 11 and verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and not the wicked. I think that's an interesting statement. The Lord does not test the wicked. The wicked may fall under judgment, but that's because of their own sin. But once you belong to God, God will test you. God tests the righteous. Look at 1 Peter 4 and verse 12. Beloved, do not be what? Surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to what? To test you as though something strange were happening to you. So the first thing that we establish from Genesis 12 and the beginning of Genesis 13 is the maxim, the, the principle, the precept, which is absolute, that if you belong to God, if you belong to God, say amen tonight. If you belong to God, God will test your faith. And you know why that's true? Because again, we're talking about faith when we study about the life of Abraham. And what's true with respect to your faith? What does God want to do with your faith? He wants to grow it. That's right. He wants to stretch it. When I was a kid, one of the toys that came out was this toy, this muscle man called Stretch Armstrong. Anybody remember Stretch Armstrong? I wish I still could find it. It's probably worth about $1,200 today in mint condition. But we used to try to bite into ours because we wanted to know what was in there and make it stretch. And it's a good thing we never got through. We'd be dead probably. But Stretch Armstrong, stretch all the way out, right? 
wrap him around stuff. Well, that's what God wants to do with you. He wants to stretch your faith. Remember, I've said God's goal in your life is to grow you into a person of gigantic faith. He doesn't want you drinking milk out of a bottle for very long. Babies do that, but a baby born into this world whose lifespan now is about 80 years will only drink milk out of a bottle for just a few months of their life. And then they start to chew things, and they start to eat substantial food. And what a tragedy that many believers never get off the bottle. I know believers that have been believers a long time still drinking out of a bottle. And that's not God's will. They never learn anything from the difficulties in life. Maybe they get angry with God or they run for, they don't want to, they don't want to learn from the lessons of life. They just want to play, try to play a game of avoidance. And yet the reality is tests are necessary in order to stretch and grow your faith. It's often been said of a person that wants to condition their body. So they go to the gym and what do they do? They pick up weights and they do resistance training and those who do resistance training understand the little saying that's been around for a long time, no pain, no, no pain, no gain. And so for a muscle to grow or to strengthen, it has to be stressed. That's the purpose of working out or lifting weights. For metal or for glass to be strengthened, it has to be tempered. You know, you can put a Pyrex glass dish into a 450 degree oven and nothing happens to it. Why? Because it's been tempered. It's been conditioned by the manufacturer to withstand these incredibly high uh, rates of heat. And so for faith to develop, it's a lot like that. It has to be stressed. It has to be tempered. The fire has to be put to it, has to be tested. And that's a major lesson from the life of Abraham. Abraham obeyed the call of God. Of course, God called him out of his home country. We know that. And God called him out of a pagan culture where they basically worship the God of the moon, astrological gods. And he calls him out of that and he makes him his own. And God says, I want you to walk out into the desert and I'm going to tell you day by day where I want you to go. And so Abraham goes out with his retinue and many of his family. They don't get it right the first time. They settle in the land of Haran, a land that means parched and they waited there for Abraham's father to die because he wasn't going to take him a, a mile longer. He was worn out. He was tired. He was hot, dusty, and thirsty. And he thought 150 miles was long enough. But God said, go. And so Abraham, after his father died, got up and went. And he goes to the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that once Abraham gets to the land of Canaan, we don't know how long it took him to get there, but it's interesting to me for this man of faith, the first thing that happens when he gets to the land of Canaan is what? God tests his faith. He no sooner got this land flowing milk and honey <clears throat> that God puts him to the test. Right out of the gate. So, I want to talk about that tonight, this inevitable test of faith. I want you to be encouraged on your faith journey because you'll be tested just like Abraham. So, let's look at a couple of these principles from Abraham's great test of faith, from the very first test that God places in his life. And the first is this, God, and I've said this a hundred times at church, God will test your faith early and often, early and often. I was talking with a lady not long ago 
who came in and just had to unpack a heavy weight that was going on in life. And I looked at her and I said, you know what? You're going to get through this and everything's going to be all right. But let me tell you this. It's not going to be the last time God tests your faith. I mean, another faith will come, a test will come along because this is the way God stretches faith. It's not one and done. One test, pass the test. Thank the Lord. No, life is just a series of tests, really, until when we're in glory. We don't need a test there anymore. We've passed the test. We've finished the race. But until that time, whether you're 10 or whether you're 20 or whether you're 40 or 50 or 60 or 150, regardless of where you are in your walk with the Lord, God's going to test your faith. And they tend to come very early in your faith walk. I, I, I mean, I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people come to faith in Christ over the last many years. And it's usually, there's usually not, you know, they often talk about the honeymoon period. It's usually not a very long grace period. Somebody gets saved and they're all excited. How many of you have known people like this? They come to Christ and then the bottom falls out within a matter of days, weeks, months, right after they've come to faith in Christ, just when they're the most enthusiastic, something happens. Happened to Jesus. Jesus started his three-year public ministry. Mark gets right to the point. If you ever read the Gospel of Mark, there's no birth narrative of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is just an adult, and bang, he comes out, goes down to John, gets baptized, and then he's led by the Spirit of God where? Into the what? Into the desert, into the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil, tested by the devil. The word tempt and the word test is exactly the same word in the Greek New Testament. He's led there to be tested by the devil 40 days and 40 nights. Right there out of the gate when he comes down to John, south country, to be baptized in the wilderness of Judah. And that was an initial test of a month and a half of his life, basically. And it's still the case today. People get saved and then they lose their job. And they can't figure it out. They thought they were secure. People get saved. And then uh, somebody gets cancer or they get a bad diagnosis or they get saved and their teenager runs away from home. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Something cataclysmic often happens early in a person's faith life. And before long, you know, what happens is they want to talk to somebody. And they said, you know, I thought I was pleasing God by surrendering my life, but it seems like God is angry. Why is God so angry with me that he would cause this to happen? And I have to explain to them, listen, God is not angry with you. God loves you more than you could ever imagine. But God's up to good in your life. It just doesn't seem like it right now. What God's trying to do is get you totally dependent on him. And then I'll look at them and I'll say, let me ask you an important question. Do you really trust God? Because it's time like these, times like these, where your faith becomes reality. It's easy to say you believe something, but it's in times like these where you really come to know what it is you truly believe. He just doesn't want you to stay a baby very long. There's a verse in the book of Hebrews that says, I think it's chapter 6, verse 1 of Hebrews, let us leave the elementary things about Christ and go on, anybody know? Go on to what? Maturity. 
maturity. See, this is what God is up to when he tests your faith. He's stretching you. You know, uh, when you have a major surgery, I was reminded of this back when Bob was in the hospital. I went to see Bob the day after his open heart surgery. And I hadn't been in there, what? I don't even, you may have been out of it. You remember me being in the room? Okay, thank you, Bob. I was in there a long time. And Bob was not happy. So I was trying to soothe him down. He wasn't feeling real good. And I hadn't been in there 10 minutes, and here comes this nurse. And she wanted to get him out of the bed. Time to get up and walk. And I wish I didn't have my camera out. If I could have captured the look on his face on, on camera, because you didn't want to get out of that bed. In fact, you did get out of the bed. No, he, he didn't. <laughs> he didn't want to get out of that bed. He said, is there any way I could talk you into coming back this afternoon? He was a very polite southern gentleman about it. Is there any way I could talk you into coming back this afternoon? And she said, okay, I'll come back this afternoon. And I think they made him get up that afternoon. <clears throat> but he wasn't going to get out of that bed. Well, that's what they want to do. You know, Judy's, I've, I've been living with a nurse long enough to know those, they want you up walking around, you know. You're sucking wind, you know, still half bleeding. Get out of that bed, right? Because this is, this is how, it doesn't seem like it at the time, but this is how you get back to recovery. This is how you get strong, right? And you got to go through pain to get back to where Bob is today, you know? And that's the way it is with life. And we see that here with Abraham. God calls him out of this land and out of this pagan system. And he does well. I mean, he responds with faith. That's why he's in Hebrews 11. Abraham believed God and it credited to him as righteousness. And Abraham went out, obeyed, not knowing where he was going. And we think, man, this is a guy that really trusts the Lord. And it's not perfect obedience at first. We talked about that a moment ago. They stopped halfway. Not the end of the world. God continued to strive with them. But then once he gets to where he was going, he didn't know where he was going. Then God gets him to where he was going, the land of Canaan, and he's immediately greeted with a test of faith. It's in chapter 12 and verse 10. Now there was a what? A famine in the land. Now we all know Abraham was a Southern Baptist. Can I have an amen? And no food for a Southern Baptist is no good. That's a good place for an amen right there. Particularly on a night we've had chicken fried steak, which was really good tonight. So he comes to the land, supposedly flowing with milk and honey and none of it's there. And it's so stark. I mean, we're expecting, all right, Abraham's going to get in the land. He's going to drive some bad people out. This is going to get good. And there's a stark statement. Oh, by the way, there was a famine in the land. That's a test of faith. Now, some of you are familiar with the story, what's going to happen next. And Abraham <laughs> He's going to demonstrate he's not a perfect guy because he's going to show us kind of a deceptive tendency. But the real test of faith doesn't have so much to do with what Abraham does. 
when he gets to Egypt, the real test of faith is the circumstances that got him there in the first place. See, we tend to, we, most of you probably read on the story. I'm getting ahead of myself, but the, Abraham goes to Egypt. And then he gets deceptive in Egypt, and we tend to major on that. But the reality is he should never gone down there in the first place. That was his initial problem. I mean, he'd obeyed God's call to travel all that way, 300 miles. But there were no green meadows and there were no fertile fields, just famine. And it was a test of faith. And that's the first thing we see. He got one immediately when he got into the land. So whether or not God's going to test your faith, that's not the issue. God's going to do that. He'll do it early. He'll do it often. But the real issue is how will you respond when God does test your faith? That's the issue. Which takes me to a second principle concerning this inevitable test of faith. God will test your faith early and often when he does. Number two, beware of overreacting when the test comes. How many of you can look back on your life and when God basically sat you down in the middle of a major life test, as my son says, you totally freaked out. You went nuts. The whole world started spinning in the opposite direction and you began to panic. Uh, I read a portion of verse 10 just a moment ago. Now there was a famine in the land. The famine was severe. Let's look at the whole verse now. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. To use our parlance today, we would say he was going to hang out there, right? For the famine was severe in the land. Now, here's the thing. If you're not reading the Bible closely, you'll just gloss right over that. Because that doesn't sound like a big deal, right? Because it sounds like a logical thing to do. If there is famine in the land... And I know that there's no famine in the next land. I'm going over to the next land where the Nile River is and the Nile Delta. And everything on a satellite topographical map is lush and green coming off all those waterworks. Let's go down there. They got plenty of grain down there. That makes perfect logical sense, doesn't it? So... How can we fault Abraham for doing what really any rational person would do in the same set of circumstances? There's a logical answer to that. There's no evidence that Abraham ever sought the will of the Lord before he left. God never told him to go down there. That's the problem with it. You say, well, if he'd have stayed in the land of Canaan, he would have died. How do you know that? You don't know that. You don't know what God would have done. God may have set him on the most fertile land in the whole place. God may have been ready to give him instructions on what to do next in order to prosper him, to make him a lighthouse and a beacon in this starving land that he was living in. You don't know what God was up to next. All you know is that Abraham made a decision on his own independent of the will of God, which, by the way, is the one thing that the devil will try to get all of us to do. The devil really has only one motive, to get you to act 
selfishly and independently apart from the will of God. See, if he can get you to do that, he's got you in a place called disobedience. And this is where Abraham is. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you know, we talked about the, the, um, uh, the issues associated with faith, the cop-out and the phase-out and all of that. And that's what Abraham, what you have is a spiritual cop-out that stems from a spiritual phase-out. Probably Abraham was weary from all that journeying. And at one point, you remember the last image we had of Abraham is that he was building all these altars and worshiping the Lord. Well, apparently somewhere along the line, he quit building altars. There's no record of Abraham consulting God. And here's the thing, where there is no worship, there will never be any word from God. I'm telling you, if you want a word from God, you better connect to God. God's not going to call you on the telephone. God's going to speak to your heart as you respond to him in worship. And so if you want to hear from God, you better make sure you're consistently worshiping God. And when you're not worshiping God, you're not hearing from God. And I can make you a guarantee tonight. When you're not hearing from God, self will take over 100% of the time. You'll start making decisions based on this rather than on this. From the gut rather than from the heart. And I'm telling you, man, you start following your emotions, you start following your gut more than you follow the will of God and the Word of God because you've got a heart that beats in conjunction with God, you're going to walk down a path that's going to result in trouble every time. See, Abraham did what he thought was right. God never told him to go to Egypt, though. In fact, with the exception of only a couple of places, there's only a couple of places in the Bible where God tells people, go down to Egypt. And one of them was the family of Joseph. After Joseph became prime minister, he told them to go because Joseph was ruling at the time. And then the other, anybody can tell me another place where God tells somebody to go to Egypt? That's right, the other Joseph. Both of them Joseph, aren't they? Joseph O.T. and Joseph N.T. You know what that is? Old Testament, New Testament. So God tells the two Josephs, bookended in the Bible, he tells those two to go to Egypt for specific purposes, but for a temporary period of time. And the reality is, aside from that, most of the time when Egypt is mentioned, is it positive or negative? Always negative. In fact, the Bible said, don't have anything to do with Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. Don't rub shoulders with the Egyptians. Have nothing to do with the Egyptians. Why? Because their son, in fact, they worshiped everything down there. Have y'all ever seen the Egyptian artwork on the tomb? Cats, bulls, dogs, crocodiles, mostly the sun. The sun got raw. Man, they worshiped everything. Polytheistic to the core. Stay away from these people because they will corrupt you. And yet the first thing Abraham does, stops consulting God, says, you know what? Let me make it up. Let me choose. Let me follow my preferences. Egypt, I've seen brochures in the AAA office. Looks really good. Let's go to Egypt. They'll have food down there. Oh, they did. They had everything you wanted down there. And then some, and a lot of it wasn't healthy. 
Isaiah 31 and verse 1. Woe to those who go down to where? There you go. To, to, and notice how specific this statement is. And this was written centuries after Abraham. Isaiah had learned the lesson from Abraham. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. Woe to those who trust in chariots because they're many. And in horsemen because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Man, I'm telling you, that'd be a pretty good memory verse. Because we're real prone to do that. You know, we want to surround ourselves with strength, with money, with power. You know, we get our sources of security in our homes and in our jobs and in our bank accounts. You know, and the Bible says that differently in other places. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, the things of the world, the stuff of the world. It really is not all that secure, really, all the time. But we trust in the name of the Lord, our God. That's right. And so this is one of the lessons of the life of Abraham because it's what happens to him here. He trusts in chariots and he trusts in horses and he trusts in towers and he trusts in systems and everything that they had like that in Egypt more than he trusted in the Lord. Times were tough. They sure were. But his first course should have been to cut a path to God. What would you have me do? What direction would you have me go? What's in the best interest of me and of my family so that we can reflect well on the God who's given us a second chance at life and eternity? But he doesn't do that. He just forms his own plans. But they were his plans, not God's. Proverbs 14 and 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way to what? death. So you got to be careful. Abraham let his fears do the talking. He overreacted. He got insecure. He fretted and he responded classically in the flesh according to his own wisdom. Now that's bad enough, but that's unfortunately not the end of it. There is a third principle and it's this, when God tests your faith, a lack of faith will usually compound your trouble. In other words, if you don't get it corrected real quick, what you find is that sin often compounds itself. And one sin leads to another until you find yourself in a situation that's just totally out of hand. Abraham, here's the thing. Abraham goes down to Egypt and once he gets there, what we find is that Abraham lost his faith in Canaan, but he lost his courage in Egypt. He lost his courage. Verse 11, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say 
this is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So say you are my what? My sister, that they may go well with me. It's a lot of me business going on here with Abraham, and it's all about him. So that it may go, lie to them for me, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Have you noticed up to this point, this is the first time we have recorded words of Abraham in the Bible. We've read a lot about Abraham up to this point, but Abraham hadn't opened up his mouth in the Scripture at all. Now he opens up his mouth, and it's a bunch of hoo-ha that comes out of it from this great man of faith. Up to this point, God's done all talking in his life. But now how ironic that his first words are deceptive words. Isn't it true that the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all and desperately wicked? That's true even with a man of faith. That's why the Bible says in the book of Proverbs 4, above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart. You don't stand guard because the heart is by default and by nature deceitful. And if you don't stand guard over it, remember what God said to Cain? You know what? Sin is crouching at your door. And you better be on your guard. You better master it. You better get a chokehold on it from the backside. Because if you don't, it will put a chokehold on you from the backside. And you'll be hard-pressed to ever wiggle out of it. So guard your heart. Because it's deceitful. Even for the saved, the heart is deceitful. And if you're not standing guard on it, you will default to darkness much of the time. And that's exactly what Abraham does here. These words of this crazy scheme that's designed to protect his own hide by offering his own wife to Pharaoh. Now, Sarah, anybody know how old Sarah is when they're down there in Egypt? 65, she's drawing Social Security. Not the maximum. She should have waited to 67. But she's 65. But that's a different 65 because they live longer back then. So she's in what we would call really early middle age and was obviously a stunning woman very attractive. There's just no question the scripture would lead us to believe that. And Abraham is so concerned that the crocodile worshipers are going to kill him in order to have her that he convinces them or her to lie. Tell them you're my sister. Now, I know what's going through his mind because anybody know the relationship between Sarah and Abraham? Yeah, that's right. She's technically his half-sister, Sarah is. And um, so this makes it kind of a half-truth, I guess, because she was the daughter of his father's wife. But you know what the saying is, right? A half-truth is a what? It's a whole lie. And uh, so it's still deceptive. And this is the thing. Have you all ever noticed how whenever... You, your flesh really wants to do something wrong. 
you can always find a good reason to justify it. Have you all ever noticed that? You've convinced yourself that there is an okay reason in order to do this. So I'm going to lie to protect or I'm going to lie to safeguard. Or I'm going to go into this establishment because there's always a good reason. At least one that we think is a good reason. I always find a reason to justify doing unhealthy behavior. And that's what he does here. He's got it all figured out. There's a good reason we don't want to die. But again, he's not taking anything to the Lord. He's just making all this up as he goes along based on what feels right at the time. And somehow he gets her to play along. You know, you'll live, I live. Maybe we'll even make a little money along the way. And they would. They would. They'd be, they would get prosperous in Egypt. When they went back to Canaan, they would go back to Canaan loaded materially. But at what cost? See, Abraham, God called Abraham, remember the covenant? He called Abraham to be a what to the nations? To be a what? A blessing. You will be a blessing to all peoples. And you know what happened? Because of this decision, God supernaturally protected Sarah because they wanted to abuse the woman sexually. And so God put a curse on the house of Pharaoh. Now, while because of the man that God had called out of Ur to be a blessing to all people, he's resulting in a curse on the household of a man. And man, Abraham finally, or not Abraham, but Pharaoh, there are plagues of disease. I mean, these, there are plagues that fall on the house of Pharaoh before, long before Moses ever comes into the picture. Plagues. They ju God judges the house of Pharaoh because of their intentions against Sarah. And Sarah was going to be the mother of the child of promise. So God was going to protect her to fulfill his covenant promises to his people. And man, I'm telling you, when Pharaoh discovers why all of this is happening, why are all these plagues, I got boils all over me, why is all this happening? And then all of a sudden he figures it out. He's just totally ticked off. He's outraged. But what's Ironic is, Pharaoh at this stage is showing more moral character than the man of God. Which is really a remarkable thing. Pharaoh asks Abraham, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Which is his way of saying, why weren't you honest with me? He's got more moral scruples than God's man does. And what a lost opportunity. You think Abraham or God wanted Abraham to be used by God to maybe influence Pharaoh spiritually? He lost that opportunity through the compromise of his character. And the last image we have, this is why living for Jesus consistently is so important. You know, we tend to fall back on grace and, you know, well, where sin abounded, grace superabounds, right? And so we often use that as an excuse to sin. I'll just sin because God's grace is greater. And as a result, God will forgive me. And he will, but at what cost? People observe that. 
and they see you saying one thing, living another way, and it compromises the witness. And we lose our influence. And the last image we have of Abraham down there on his Egyptian holiday is being publicly rebuked by a pagan king and then ran out of town on a rail. And some might say, well, you know what? He left wealthy. He did pretty good. Had more livestock than he ever had. Well, let me just tell you, all that wealth is going to wreak havoc in the man's household. And you know what else? Who does he leave Egypt with? There's a young Egyptian maidservant that he didn't have in his household that he now has, and he takes her back with him to Canaan, and her name was what? Hagar, that's right. And that's going to cause a really big deal by the time we get to Genesis chapter 16. All of that because of his disobedience. So one sin has a way of leading to another, which is why failing the test of faith usually leads to even greater trouble in the long run. But having said that, let me finish tonight by saying something, and this is number four on your list. And this is beautiful. This is what I love. Failing the test doesn't mean you have to fail the course. Amen. Some of you failed a test when you were in high school or college, but you still managed to pull a C out of the course, right, on your report card. You still passed when the report card came out. So just because you, and you will fail tests. I failed tests. We're all imperfect. But just because you fail the test doesn't mean you fail the course. So when your faith heads south and when you uncover it, man, I've messed this up. I've made decisions of my own making. And I've spun a web of deception and hung myself in the middle of it. When your faith heads south, all you got to do is turn back north again. Travel back to the place where God is. That's what Abraham does. This takes us to the first few verses of Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. I love that. Abraham went back home to God. Isn't that great? And there. Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. Now, that's what he should have done when the famine first hit. That was the right response right there. But he had to go roundabout in order to get there. Maybe it was good in the long run. Well, it was good in the long run. He learned some things that probably made him a better follower of the Lord. But even though... He didn't do that at first, even though he failed the test. Isn't it great that he could still go back to God? He could still go back to Bethel. Bethel, anybody know what Bethel means? House of God, that's right. House of God. And it was there <clears throat> Abraham built his first altar to the Lord, an altar of worship. 
And so that's what I love about this story. In that time of failure, he was still able to go back to God's house. And that was exactly the lesson that Jesus was trying to teach in his most beloved parable of all, which is which parable? Parable of the what? Prodigal son. That's right. What's the lesson of the parable of the prodigal son? Failure is never final in the kingdom of God. Just because, are y'all still with me? Say amen. Just because you fail doesn't make you a failure. Amen. Just because everybody fails. If you're not failing, you're not trying very hard. You're not risking very much. Get out on the limb. But know that failure is always a risk, but that's okay. Peter learned it when he denied the Lord three times, and Jesus restored him three times in John 21. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. You messed up three times. I just restored you three times because you can always come back to Christ. You can always come home to God. That little boy, that young adult got up out of the hog pen, came back to the father. And Abraham went back to Bethel. And that's what he discovered. He failed the test, but he didn't have to fail the course. He went back and God restored him. And God used him hugely, even after a colossal failure. Failure is never final in the kingdom of Christ. So, you got it? This is the inevitable test of faith for anyone who would follow the voice of God. Remember it well. God will test your faith early and what? Often. And after he does that, when God tests your faith, beware of what? Overreacting when the test comes and then... A, a lack of faith, if you're not careful, if you're not checking that in your spirit, it will usually what? Compound the trouble. But failure never has to last. Failing the test doesn't mean you have to fail the course. Go back to Bethel, and you'll find God waiting for you with outstretched arms, ready to do a new work in and through your life. This is God's Word, and all God's people said, Amen.